to Mark 14 today. Um, you know, last time uh, where we left off there, we <clears throat> we saw that Jesus had been agonizing in prayer in the garden, and he'd, he'd set his mind to do what the Father had told him to do. We looked at the cup and what all that entailed that he had to to fully consume and drink, and he set his mind to do it. He where we left, he had he had left the garden, and um, he was immediately uh, approached by Judas, the betrayer, as we looked at, and the mob is there. Judas, if, if you remember, showed the mob who it was that that they were looking for, Jesus, and that uh, the reason that the kiss was so important there uh, because they. Um, you know, it was dark, and Middle Eastern Jews looked like Middle Eastern Jews. It was probably hard to tell which one was Jesus among that large group of people. So <clears throat> Judas comes with a kiss, and the thing that really bothered me about that when I started looking at that word is this wasn't just a little peck, you know, on the cheek. This was, this involves an embrace, and it showed respect and affection. I mean that you know it was like if you saw your friend, it wouldn't be just a little, um, um, you know, peck on the yeah this guy. You know I don't know if any of y'all ever traveled to parts of the world that greet like that. You know it's kind of a um, real quick you know two two on both cheeks, especially for the guys. You know don't want to be all weird about that, but especially for American guys, I guess you could say. But you know this was a lot more than that. This was an embrace. And I just wonder how Jesus is, you know, his his shepherding side of him. I mean, this is one of his guys that had followed him for a couple, three years, and he had poured into him. And, you know, and he, I mean, he knew all this was going to go on, but I think his tender care for people... It had to really break his heart. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. You know, I, I just I think of how tenderly he cared for mankind, even those that were just always bombarding him. You know, I'm reminded of that passage. I think it's in John. Y'all could help me. Um, <clears throat> the well, maybe it's Luke, but anyway, the uh, excuse me, <clears throat> the um, the lost sheep. You know, when he talks about that, you know if. You got you got a hundred sheep. One of them goes astray. He leaves the ninety nine and goes after the one, puts him on his shoulders and carries him back. That tender care, and Judas is betraying him. So that really that bothers me, you know. And so in verse chapter fourteen, verse forty eight, we read that. It, it, and Jesus said to them, "Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me?" Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. So he didn't hide. He didn't try and escape when the soldiers arrived. You know, no matter how many soldiers came uh, with the Jewish leaders there, very interestingly, according to scripture, they they couldn't have taken him anyway, right? Why? Because, I mean, he's God, right? So what was really going on here was, as we've looked at, is Scripture being fulfilled because um, throughout the, his entire ministry, they'd tried to take his life, but the timing wasn't right. So God always found a way 
I've not found a way like there was a secret passage way, but God always worked it out in his providence that that they would not accomplish what they were after at that time, right? I remember years ago when Shane was preaching in Luke and he and all the they were all looking for a sign, a wonder, you know, something to happen and and they went to seize Jesus and he wasn't there. Shane said that was their sign. They should have gotten it then. Where'd he go? I mean, he was right there a second ago, you know, and he just kind of went through their midst. And so this was all on God's perfect timing as these things unfold. They hadn't had success before because it wasn't the Father's timetable at that. And there's tons of scriptural references for that. And Jesus himself said, you know, that he would lay down his his life. in John chapter 7, you know, he would lay down his life, but not until his hour had come. That I think that's really important. John 10, verses 17 and 18 say, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So we see that even this was under the divine providential control of God, right? So today we're going to pick up um, looking into this very long night, long for Jesus. He still hadn't slept. He went through all that stuff in the garden, agonizing the sweats of blood. I mean, he, he has to be physically tired. The disciples, the 11, they've had a little bit of rest as he was praying. They were sleeping. Um, it's now after midnight, and um, the, um, the, the mob has come. They've taken him. And verse 50 ends with, and they all left him and fled. You know, think of the initial boldness of Peter that we looked at last time when he, he pulled his sword and cut Malchus's ear off, right? And now he fled. I mean, what in the world? How do you go from trying to make a defense like that to running away? And Jesus had told them earlier to just the failure of these guys, I guess, is encouraging to me because, you know, I fail often as well. But, you know, he had told them to stay awake and pray. They failed at that. And then now, just as Jesus had predicted in verse 27 of this chapter, they, 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 they left. They quickly flee the scene. And I suppose, you know, that they had fear of being arrested. Maybe they had to give them some credibility here maybe they had the idea that um you know maybe if we escape then we can go snatch him out of their their hands you know further down the road here but i don't know i think probably they they were just scared you know look at the number of these guys and there's 11 of us and jesus and he seems to be walking right into it so we better just hit the road right so i wonder for us you know today have you ever had an experience in your life somewhat like that to where you were, you know, one, not maybe from moment to moment, but within a period of time, you were with a group of people, and you were maybe somewhat bold for the gospel, and and then, um, you know, as a little bit of time unwinds, you know, you start to soften a little, you know, and, you know, now maybe you're even, um, you know, kind of siding with the mob, you know, and or you don't want to go with the mob, so you're not going to stand for Jesus anymore, so you just leave. Right. Have you ever had those kind of instances in your life? You know, where would that typically happen for us? What do you think? Work, certainly, yeah. 
school, work, those kind of situations, you know, and certainly, you know. So um, we got to be careful to not be too hard on these guys because we're in that boat as well, right? So Mark closes this account in the garden with a really odd illustration, verse 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. All right, so because this, none of the other gospel writers talk about this situation, because of that, a lot of commentators think that this was probably Mark himself. I don't know that you can come to that conclusion. You, I mean, well, you can. I couldn't come to it, right? There's a lot of people that say <clears throat> it was unique to Mark, but it doesn't say, so I'm not going to go there. But nothing in the text says who the man was. Um, and really, the, at the end of the day, I don't think it's relevant to who it was. I think what we're really getting at, I think Mark's key point here was that to, to emphasize the complete isolation that Jesus was getting ready to experience. You know, I mean, we, we saw the 11 left. Well, here comes another one. Even if it was Mark, some people think that it was Mark and he was asleep in his home and now this mob and all is coming by. It doesn't matter who it was, right? He goes after him, but then there's that pressure again. They grab him. Well, let's take this guy with him. And, and the, the person flees rather than going. So doesn't really matter, right? <clears throat> um, this linen cloth thing, a lot of people say, well, why would the guy just have a cloth around and run around in the middle of the night without any clothes on? More than likely a sleeping garment or perhaps just this, maybe it was a hot night and, uh, you know, he was just in his underwear with a sheet wrapped around him. Who knows? But he ran out of the house more than likely because, I mean, this was a huge mob of people. So, you know, think of if you're asleep and you hear something outside, do you get out of bed or you just continue to lay there? You know, I get out of bed. Well, actually, I get scared first, then my wife elbows me. Go see what that is. <laughs> right. Where's the gun? <laughs> you, know, you don't have time for that. Um, you know, then we have the argument, not the argument. We have the discussion of, uh, well, what's the gun doing in the closet? And the bullets are on the other shelf, you know, and just go see what it was. But I think that's kind of what's going on here, right? Whoever this was is asleep. All this ruckus comes by, and so he runs out to see... Um, what's going on there and gets caught up in the ruckus and uh, they grab hold of him and he he flees without his sheet right everyone else runs away this guy runs away so we uh looking at this text going forward it it helps us to understand because there are some differences the way the different gospel writers uh present this but the uh Jesus' appearance before these Jewish authorities actually happened in three stages. Mark gives us one of them. The first stage uh, we see in John 18, we don't need to look at that, but that was a preliminary questioning by Annas, uh, who was actually Caiaphas's father who used to be the high priest. And uh, I'll read John uh, 18, 12, and 13. It says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So that was the first stage of, of this uh, questioning. Then the second one, which is the one we're going to look at this morning in Mark 14, 
was the arraignment before Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. And the, the third one was when he was actually formally condemned by the Sanhedrin in a very brief meeting right after the break of day. And Mark 15, 1 says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest led a consult, consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. But like I said, Mark starts with <clears throat> the arraignment before Caiaphas. So if you look at verse 53 and 54, it says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Well, as we just saw in John 18, prior to that, you you got John uh, showing us there that first Jesus was taken to Anna's former high priest. But it's interesting, you know, if he was the former high priest, why do you think they went there? What's the significance of that? Does anybody know? He he had been high priest uh, from year 6 to 15, and uh, Rome had actually removed his authority. We don't really know why, but we historically says that Rome removed his uh, authority in his son-in-law, Caiaphas, he was the high priest at this point. He served from 18 to 36. But why Why would they have gone there first? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly, is that what you were going to... I think it was more of, yeah. <laughs> I think it was more of the uh, that. I mean, if you think it through, you know, if especially since they're of the same family, right? I mean, if you used to be it, now your son-in-law. Well, I mean, those of us that have sons-in-laws, right? We we kind of want to try and influence them a little bit. I mean, after all, they're married to our baby, right? So um, we've got some input into their lives, and so certainly, you know, I think that's part of what was going on there as well. And and also, historically, we know that, that Annas and his sons controlled all of that mess that was going on in the temple that we looked at months ago, right? They were the ones that were in charge of that. And, and so much so that, that that whole selling of all the stuff in the temple for the sacrifices was actually called the Bazaar of Annas. So he had big-time control, even at this point. And... You know, he maybe didn't have the, you know, well, I mean, I guess just like, you know, our government officials all consult the ones that were there before as well. Um, and, you know, I think the mob knew that, well, if Annas is the one that was in charge of all that mess in the uh, in the temple, and boy, did Jesus raise a ruckus with that, right, as he turned that upside down, certainly this would be a very uncomfortable position for Jesus to come before him you know, in that kind of a somewhat of a mock formality, I guess. But nonetheless, you know, humanly speaking, if if you're facing the guy that you just turned his whole business upside down, you know, there had to be some, not Jesus was sinless, so he wasn't shaking in fear. But you know what I mean? Mentally, um, humanly speaking, when you're facing somebody like that, so... 
in their minds at least, they thought, well, he won't be able to stand up to this. So he appears before the uh, former high priest. And actually in John 18 again, maybe you ought to turn there. This just references so much. Let's look at verses 19, 19 through 24 because it does describe that scene prior to where Mark is in Mark 14. So John 18 in verse 19 uh, says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that what you answer? Is, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, I have spoken wrongly. Testi- have, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him out, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So, boy, oh boy, he just put him in his place, didn't he? I mean, I wasn't hiding nothing. Everybody heard it. What are you talking about? Uh, so we see with that that Annas' pure purpose in this was to find some false evidence which, which he could then use to um, manufacture a case against Jesus. So he comes up with this. I mean, if you think about it, boy, Jesus, I mean, he just turned what he said upside down. That had to really make him angry, right? So interestingly that Jesus, the the questions directed at him were not intended to uncover the truth, but really just to trap him and incriminate him. Um, and Jesus's reply was kind of like, you know what? It's pretty easy to discover the truth and what I said. You know, ask any of the countless thousands of people that heard it. It was public. This wasn't something that was done in some back room. And, um, you know, it's public record. Anybody can find it. Um, You know, like go to the library and research it if you don't believe it type of thing, right? So on top of that, I think it would have, uh, his words would have reminded Annas that legally, he was required to call witnesses if he wanted to bring charges against him. You couldn't just have one. Deuteronomy 19 in the Jewish law talks about you got to have more than one witness, right? And so, you know, go get one if you want. They're all over the place. They all heard me. But instead of doing that, uh, no official charges being rendered there. Jesus should have been released. But instead, Anna sent him to Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin for the next attempt to fabricate a crime worthy of of death. So by this time, the entire um, legal council, if you will, had gathered together. And this is just bizarre in Mark's writing to me. Right in the middle of all that, think of what we're just talking about. And boom, verse 54, Mark interrupts this narrative with a parenthetical statement about uh, Peter. You know, torn by, I guess at this point, you know, Peter left and cut, well, he went with him, cut the guy's ear off, you know, saw Jesus, put it back on. Then um, then they all flee, but I don't know if he, maybe he ran 200 yards and he decided to kind of turn back and keep a distance and go back. But, you know, he'd come back 
to some degree anyway. And um, I'm sure hoping to be somewhat secret, right? And he sneaks in, sitting with officers, warming himself by the fire. But in doing so, he really placed himself in a quite precarious situation here. And um, soon he'd be recognized by one of the disciples. And um, we'll look at that in verses 66 and following. That's why it's just odd to me that Mark throws it right in there and then goes back to the account with the court. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. You know, any lawyer would have just thrown the whole thing out right here, right? And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They couldn't even come up with the same story. Uh, Why in the world did they not pull aside and at least collaborate on telling the same story, right? Have you ever been in a situation with, with a police officer and multiple witnesses? You ever been in that situation? It's amazing that you got three or four people, one officer, and nobody can, they, and all saw the same thing, and nobody can make it seem right. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's right. Which is going to be what? Yeah. 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 Yeah, they have at this point, they have gone completely away from wanting to see anything of truth, right? They just want his guilt to be there so that they can accomplish their will with it, right? I think that's very key. And, And that's the same thing that happens with a group of people today and a police officer. All of a sudden, when there's a legality in play, it all becomes about protecting me, right? I was with some people a couple of years ago when the police were called, and um, it was just so interesting. This guy tells this story, and this one tells that story, and that one, I didn't really see it, you know. This guy bails completely. And, um, and then... The officer continues his question, and now all of a sudden this guy's story changed a little bit. You know, well, this one's sticking clear, and this one, well, maybe I did see. You know, you see, I mean, it just keeps going around and around like that. And the officer ended up taking one of them to jail because he changed his story like three times in three minutes. And the other one, I mean, I told the officer, I said, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind. You hear me, sir? Yes, sir, I hear you. That this guy instigated. And the officer said, but his story stayed the same. I said, I know it did, and that's fine. And this guy swung first, so he's going. That's great, but I just want you to know, this was, this was no doubt in my mind, this was the instigator. Right? So, um, but I guess the moral of the story is if you get pulled over, stick to your story. <laughs> Tell the truth, right? But you see what happens here. This is the same thing that was going on here. These guys couldn't even keep their, their, their story straight. They, they keep changing it. And, you know, there'd been, there'd been no official indictment at this point. You know, there's no credible evidence on the table, 
right? So they needed to charge him before they could convict him, though. So we got to trump up a charge. And they keep trying to obtain testimony against him. So they keep digging, they keep digging. Now, very interestingly, according to Jewish law, the Sanhedrin itself is not even allowed to, to initiate charges. That, that's against the law. I mean, well, you'd think these guys would at least uphold that because that's who they are. But no, they want to trump these things up so badly that they're willing at this point to do it completely illegally. And they're going to act as the prosecutors that are searching for the grounds to, to indict him. And they're not finding any. So you can imagine in their minds, they're getting more and more angry as time clicks away. So all of a sudden you got this group that, according to Matthew 26, that brings a false testimony. And, and they were even willing to lie to manufacture a capital crime. But... Again, their testimony wasn't consistent, so that one doesn't stick. So instead of proving his guilt, they actually contradict their story so much that his, his, innocence, his innocence gets clearer and clearer instead of the guilt getting clearer and clearer. So eventually, you know, Mark tells us here that these liars stand up and begin to give this false testimony in verse 58. We heard him say he was going to destroy the temple. Well, they were twisting his words from three years prior to that and uh, claimed that uh, he threatened to, you know, destroy the actual temple. And we know that he was talking about himself and not that. So they twist that all around. And um, it just becomes clear that their testimony is completely inconsistent with anything that makes sense. So that night at the house of Caiaphas, and, and like I said a minute ago, completely clear violation of Deuteronomy 19, having the multiple witnesses of the Sanhedrin have tried to construct the case based entirely on lies. And that, I'm sure that works sometimes in court, but not very often, especially not when you're talking about the court of God, right? So Jesus was sinless, so their testimony could, um, no true testimony about what they were saying could, could have been produced. Um, but yet, even when responding with these perjury, malicious perjury against him, they still couldn't coordinate a case. I just marvel at God's providence and how this is unfolding. I would think that one of these brilliant men would have at some point said, you know what, maybe we got this all wrong. But it had to happen, right? That's the marvel to me is it had to happen. So God is unfolding it with his, his will, and, and the, it just keeps getting worse and worse. From These guys are digging a deeper and deeper hole for themselves, I guess is what I'm saying. So when Caiaphas hears all this, he just pounces on the situation. He has had it. And in verse 60, he stands up and he says, Have you no answer to make what these men testify and, well, Jesus was innocent, and he knew that no reply was necessary, and he remained silent. Um, and this, again, is one of those things where you just have to see God at work through this to understand what was going on. Because, again, at that point, they could have just abandoned the court. We got it all wrong, guys, but God's plan has to work out. And... This is where it just humbles me in knowing that as I read this and 
study of what we're going through in Mark 14 here is seeing our Savior, especially I keep going back to that agonizing in the garden when he knew what was coming and he still did it, right, for us. I don't get that. You know, I love my wife and my family, but would I really go that far, you know, to take the, I mean, you know, the crucifixion's one thing, I horrific pain and suffering for us, but the wrath of God being poured out on him, you know, instead of on us. I don't get that. I can't comprehend that. And then to have these guys, you know, as we'll see in a second, they're spitting at him and they're hitting him. I mean, he could have called down, you know, I I don't know. I just, it, it humbles me knowing how wicked I am and, and then I read how he's just standing there taking all this reviling and all this abuse. When somebody snaps at me, I mean, I'm quick. There's some people in here that could testify to that, um, right? So, I don't know. It's just, what do you all think about that? Does it humble you to think that our Savior did this for us? You know, at any moment, Right. They, they could have been the Father and He and the Spirit. They don't need us. You know, we don't add to them. They're not lonely because we're not there. They don't need mankind. And yet, they're, they're loving towards us and went to this extent. Um, so, woe is me, right? So, interestingly, this question that he asked in verse 60, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. Well, actually, that's the first legitimate question that's been asked all night, right? Uh, That's the only one that makes any sense. And, um, you know, of course, Jesus knew Caiaphas was hoping to trap him. And um, Jesus knew exactly what was happening, though. So, in a sense, he goes along right with it. Uh, Rather than sidestepping it, he responded with a bold, clear-cut declaration of his messiahship in verse 62 he says and jesus said i am there's one of those statements right and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven so this is one of those wow moments for me he faced his accusers and he announced to them that he was their messiah and their divine judge by the way right and he knew when he said that, he absolutely knew that was getting ready to seal his death. But he was ready because he had just spent all that time in prayer with the Father in the garden. So that kind of sparks in my mind, am I ready not for a trial like that, but am I ready to face the, the trials that may come into my life today? And the only real answer to that is, yeah, if I've spent quality time with my Father like he did. Right, and we are, I don't know about, maybe I shouldn't say we, but um, I know many times in my life I have a little, you know, petty little quiet time, so to speak, and then I expect to get up and battle the day. Not really, that's not going to work, right? We have to have quality time with our Father in order to face the trials that may come our way today, to be able to stand, to be able to carry out His will in our lives, Uh, So once that happens, he determined that he was going to go through with it again back in the garden. So he just did it right there. The high priest jumps up, 
rips his clothes, you know. You know, that's a completely fake outrage by this guy. All show, right? You know, it, it, that was a symbol in, in the Jewish day there of, for the high priest to do that. A symbol of righteous indignation. He just blasphemed God. I'm going to rip all my clothes, right? I remember years ago, some little boy right in front of us in church just got up and started taking his shirt off, took his undershirt <laughs> off, you know, and his dad looked around. I guess he's mad at somebody. It's that righteous indignation. <laughs> the kid was about four, you know. So. But um, this is what the, the Jewish uh, law would say to do. But they... they um, also, that was for the high priest, but the Jewish people, uh, when they would go through times of immense grief, they would tear their clothes and throw dust and ashes all over their cells, right? So, um, according to Leviticus 21, verse 10, the high priest actually was forbidden to tear his clothes unless it was an outrageous grievance as that, and the, uh, the, their tradition and law allowed them to do it when God was blasphemed. But this is all fake. All fake. And um, on the outside, he, he pretended to honor God by tearing his garments in, in shock over the blasphemy of Jesus. But inwardly, the hypocritical high priest, he cared nothing about honoring God at this point. So that also causes me to think, of, you know, have I ever found myself or have you ever found yourself outwardly doing acts to show you're this godly person, but inwardly you're just writhing against God and your brother or your sister in Christ, right? I mean, we do the same thing lest we be too harsh on these guys, right? We we do the same thing. We want to... Where does it happen, for those of you that are married, where does this kind of show happen the most, do you think? What do you think? Y'all know as well as I do. Somebody just say it. At, pardon? In our marriage. In our marriage. But yeah, but where, publicly where? Where are you putting on perhaps the show? At church. At church. Absolutely. You know, I'll guarantee you, those of you that are married, let's, let's talk about this. <laughs> where are more family arguments taking place? On the way to church, right? Or on the way home. I mean, you just sang to God and heard a great sermon. Bible on the dashboard, maybe, so everybody can see how godly you are driving home. You're, you're speeding. You're yelling at your wife. The kids are starving in the back seat, screaming, where are we going to eat? And you're, you've had it, right? So... That's the, maybe not as severe as this, but we're sinning, right? We've just done all this great stuff for God, and, and here we go. Um, I heard a couple one time tell this in a public setting. They were uh, at a conference, and it was on, it was on uh, conflict resolution in a marriage, and that this couple had three young kids, and um, like so many of us guys, he didn't lift a finger to help get the kids ready in the morning. So he does his thing. He's had his eighth cup of coffee, and he gets out into the car, and, and you know he does take the kids and put them in the car, but he didn't get them ready, right? And so now they're all buckled in, and, and he starts honking the horn. And this is week after week 
after a week. And this was before cell phone days. So now it'd probably be, you know, calling on the cell phone, slowing her down even more. Where are you? Beep, beep, beep. You know what she did? She walked out in her bra and underwear and got in the car. (laughs) That was the last time. He's like, what are you doing? She's like, well, you're ready to go. You won't give me time. So, but, uh, you know, so of course he turned the car off and said, all right, you know, he got it. But so many times we put on this show, don't we? You know, maybe even had a little quiet time that morning, you know, while she's getting the kids so he could hold his head up even higher when he got to church. But it's the inside that matters, right? God looks at our hearts. He doesn't care what our outward appearance is. So we got to really check ourselves on this. But, you know, Caiaphas ends this section, this sentence with a question what further witness do we need right very rhetorical question huh and he's indicating you know this case is closed the verdict is set you know he's he's got to die i mean he blasphemed god what else do we need you know and i mean he wanted an absolute his question demanded an an immediate um response what is your decision and uh you know, he blasphemed, we got to get rid of him. And, I mean, that was absolute Old Testament defiant irreverence of God. And the Old Testament teaches in Leviticus 24, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Right? Now, for a mere man to claim equality with God was, I mean, that is a reason to be blasphemed, right? I mean, to, to be regarded as blaspheme, blasphemy. But Jesus wasn't a mere man. I was talking to a friend here at church right before class, and his um, uh, he with the police department, and they found some guy walking down Cobb Parkway here the other day, completely naked. And when they arrested him, he said his goddess told him that uh, you know that he this was his punishment, and and um, you know that's blasphemy there you know so not that he would be put to death but he needed to suffer the crime the penalty of the crimes that are done there but jesus was not a mere man right so this wouldn't even apply to him and normally their decision this shows how rapid this all goes that that normally their decision followed a very orderly process you know they were this was a legal boom 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 but not this time Typically, they would get the younger members to vote first so that they wouldn't be swayed by the older members, right? Because the younger members are always going to be, i got to please him, so i got to do it this way. But they didn't even do that. They just, right off the bat, uh, verse 64, the end of it says, and they all condemned him as deserving of death. They didn't even do the vote. They just all condemned him. And uh, in their anger and hatred, Verse 65 says, And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So they're, they're, they're now they're getting into the physical assault on him. And, and chaos is breaking out now. And this the act of spitting for a Jew really constitutes the most detectable form of personal insult. And you can see that in Numbers 12. 14, Deuteronomy 25, 9. You know, that's a huge insult to spit on somebody. And, and by the way, I, we need to think of that. 
because I remember years and years and years ago, I had a guy come up to me in the city when I had a ministry in a drug neighborhood in the inner city of Atlanta. And this guy came up to me and he said, you know, I was following hard after Christ and, and I got back on the drugs and I just, I don't know how to, to battle this. And he said, I know, I, 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 well, he didn't say I know. He said, I, I believe that I, that I love Jesus, but I, and I kind of finished it, but you love your drugs as well. And he was like, well, yeah. And he said, so what, give me a word, is what he said, to help me. And I don't know why I thought of this, but I said, think of it like this. Every time you get ready to use, you're walking up to Jesus on the cross, and you're going deep within your throat to get some phlegm, and you just spit it right in his face. You know, that's what these guys were doing. This was God. And that's what we're doing when we go to sin. We're spitting in God's face. You know, how horrific is that, right? But they spit, you know, and then taking matters in even even further, they blindfold him and they start to hit him and, and you know, jeer at him and taunt him and say, prophesy, you know. I mean, is that not irreverent uh, mockery to a divine God? In, in Matthew 26, in his Matthew's account, he even says, you know, prophesy, who's the one that hit you? Well, you think he knew? Absolutely. I mean, he's God. Why wouldn't he know? Um, that would have been quite guilt-laden condemnation, wouldn't it? If he said, well, it's you, Tim. Whoa, I better get out of here, right? But he, didn't, he said nothing. And, and the, you know, after they got tired of taunting him like that, they hand him over to the temple police, and these guys continue to beat him, right? But we shouldn't be surprised because that's exactly what he told the disciples back in chapter 10, verse 33, says the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him and three days later he will rise again. So he knew all this, right? Now, can you see why he agonized in prayer in the garden? I mean, because that was days before, weeks before, and then now it's coming about. So, you know, I think that that's just huge, right? That what do you do when somebody reviles at you? I I've never had anybody walk up and spit at me for standing up for God. I've never had anybody. Well, I have. Now that I think I have been. How do you say? Striked? Strucken? Struck? Somebody, I've been struck hard. Struck hard by a girl about this big. Cold cocked me. Left a handprint on my face for three weeks. I mean, she hit me like I've never been hit before. I've been hit by some guys, and this little old gal popped me good. Open hand. And all I did was address the father. But what do we tend to do when that happens? I didn't snatch her up and beat her down, so <laughs> don't worry about that. She took off. I couldn't catch her. No. Um, <laughs> what do we tend to do when we're reviled against? Retaliate. We retaliate. I mean, Peter tells us that, doesn't he? You know, Peter, you know, he, he says he, Jesus was reviled and he reviled not, right? And that's where we got to get, you know. We, wouldn't it be nice if we got, not to the point of striking people, but if we got upset 
with the way our Savior is being treated in the world or those around us. I want so bad. I'm not bold enough yet. You could pray for me with this. But have you ever been in public and somebody gets alarmed by something or something happens and they go, Oh, Jesus! You know, has that ever happened to you? I want so bad, maybe talking about it in public, I'll do it now, to say, really, where? Or do you know him too? You know, that kind of thing. I mean, but that's, that's taking our Savior's name in vain, right? And we need to be bold with our witness for him, you know, to um, stand up for him. You know, I don't know what I'm afraid of when I don't stand up, but, you know, the 11 guys fled. You know, I don't want it said of me is I took off too when when Jesus is being drugged through the mud. The, the, Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's a good comeback. Yeah. 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 So you're at least responding back with something positive. And then they kind of think about maybe it's a dream. Yeah. Great. Thank you. That was good. Yes, sir. Oh. You said your people say GD a lot, and I would say God don't need no dam. He can walk on water. Look at me. Okay. Are they the tape? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, you know, the way the world treats him. I, you know, that's just part of the hatred, right? That is just inbred in us as as sinners, right? We go astray from the womb, Psalm fifty-eight, three. And if you got kids, you know that's true. They don't come out doing right. You know, wouldn't it be awesome if you had to teach your kids to do wrong? You know, that's a concept. <laughs> they just boom straight to sin. I remember one time a little grandkid at our house walking towards the coffee table, shaking her head no, but going for the item anyway. You know? And that's sin manifested, right? But think of our own selves. The Holy Spirit is condemning us. Don't do it. And we're headed straight into it, right? Well, we'll uh, pick up Peter's failings next week. Um, So any further questions? Yes, sir. I had a comment just about um, the you know leaders and them condemning Jesus. Uh, it's not surprising that you know these leaders who were consumed with outward appearances are going to judge Jesus with the exact same standards, right? There was mm-hmm. nothing commendable, uh, attractive about Jesus whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, he he. Um, uh, that's not what Jesus was about. Like he, they would have thought that, you know, the the Messiah would have, uh, you know, uh, at least from the, the the leaders' viewpoint, um, would have aligned with their teaching and commended the leaders for everything they're doing, the practices. But Jesus wasn't consumed with, you know, appearances or mm-hmm. the praise of man. And so it's it's no surprise that the religious leaders of that time would have resented. Jesus for that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and I mean, if you think of how ornate the temple was and all that, and then here comes, you know, he looked so much like the rest of the guys that he had to be betrayed by a kiss. You know, he wasn't in a flashy suit, you know, and, um, you know, so, yeah, that's good. He was an ordinary guy, right? (laughs) Uh, But God, and so, anything else? All right.